Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that help them become more real to us because we believe that helps us draw more power out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and you can see that I'm here with my, my good friend, Rabbi Joe Charnas, and uh, we're just so happy to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Real pleasure. Uh, Real pleasure to be here. So our audience will know that uh, Rabbi Joe has been on with us a couple of times. We did... Um, James and Colossians um, and yeah, part of Colossians. And yeah, then and we talked about General Conference, I believe. So on the for, on Colossians, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Colossians, right? But it's a pleasure to have, uh, and and we talked about interfaith relations as well. Yeah, uh, so we'd refer you to those if you want to learn a little bit more uh, about the rabbi. Anything else you'd like to tell them about yourself? Um, I'm just honored to be here, and it's always inspiring and instructive. Our dialogues. Well, I, I feel the same. Uh, I was thinking, do you, do you have a website or something people can go to, to learn more about what you do? No, I'm, I'm not particularly social media oriented. I should be. People have asked. Yeah. And maybe I should. That's a good calling. All right. Thank well, you. <laughs> well, good. But you can certainly find out about what uh, he's doing or the things he's done with us on the podcast. And we'll try and we have some plans to do some other yeah. uh, things together that uh, we'll put on at least uh, some of my my uh, websites and so on. Okay. So, Fantastic. Um, in the meantime, I think it is a rare honor and privilege to be able to have uh, a, a, any rabbi, but especially Rabbi Joe, uh, that's willing to talk with us about some of the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon. And that seems like the, the natural place for us to go to really get into Isaiah. So uh, we have some background things we're going to do, and, and then we'll just kind of see where we go from there. Yeah. Right? So today I just want to tell you how much the stars are literally aligning uh, for our Missouri workshop. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, the day after we end this workshop is actually the huge solar eclipse that's going to be the most complete and biggest solar eclipse that we've had in a long time and will have for a long time. And that Missouri is one of the prime places, if not the prime place to view this in the whole nation. So you can uh, come out and do our workshop and then you can see this amazing eclipse. And maybe that will be a sign of the time that the world's ending. I hope not. But anyway, and I, I hope you know I'm just joking. But this really is, it's aligning in other ways as well. This is going to be so fantastic. For so many years, I've wanted Alex Baugh to join me in Missouri because of how much he knows and he's joining me. We've got this lodging that is just fantastic and beautiful right at Adam on Diamond, just really right there. Uh, we are going to be able, we've got some other things going on, which I've just hear rumblings about uh, things going on in Missouri that seem like this is the right time to do this. Uh, we're going to do a lecture ahead of time via Zoom to prep you. We'll give you some things to read. Um, we're going to be joined by some locals and uh that that really know the area but then uh, we'll, we'll do lectures there in the uh lodge uh at the place that's built for for that and and go out on site uh so you'll be able to see the pictures and some of the the things you can only see using powerpoints and then go out on site and do this uh it to me this is the perfect learning situation where you can do things this is like the jerusalem center in missouri you can do things in the classroom and then go out and do them on the site and then back in the classroom then out on the site uh we'll eat together while we do some of those things we'll listen to some conference together uh and then do these things uh, i cannot imagine a way to understand some of the more crucial elements that the elements of zion the gathering uh consecration zion's camp uh 
printing, uh, some of the key persecutions, uh, but just some of the most crucial elements of church history. Uh, and this is fantastic prep for our doing church history next year. This is going to be so great, so cool. Please join us uh, and join us soon. Email us at thescripturesareal at gmail.com to reserve your spot. So again, email us at thescripturesareal. Do it quickly, thescripturesareal at gmail.com for this fantastic star-aligned event. So why don't you... Why don't you start us out? Well, I always think it's important when, when we study a text to understand some of the context. Yes. And we often lose that awareness when we study at times, and we just focus on the text itself as it relates to us, which is important. Mm -hmm. But understanding the, the foundation helps you relate it more to you. I, I, I'll just... I don't mean to interrupt, but no, no. I have to say, I couldn't agree more. In fact, the whole reason I wrote uh, the commentary that I wrote, well, not the whole reason, one of the main reasons, there are a lot of good uh, commentaries that, that Latter-day Saints have written about Isaiah, but I felt like they always focused on uh, Christ's day or our day, and were never talking about the original context, or very seldom talking about the original context, and I felt like you can't understand any of the other things it says as well, if you don't yeah. understand that original context. Right. So that's yeah. I, I, why I wrote, I wrote a book because I felt so strongly about what you're talking about. And, and the, the danger, look, every, every approach has some danger in it or some, something missing. If we only study context and history, then the text isn't relevant. Yeah. But if, if we don't root it in its context, then it's more often, what I think and what I feel rather than what our holy text is trying to instruct us in. So what, what I thought we would possibly do today, at least in part, as we go through some of Isaiah is not so much the context that you gave in, in that book that was about this fat on Isaiah, but more specifically on what, what is prophecy or what is a prophet first? Good. And at least in our traditions, and to see where we, in, in Venn diagram fashion, where we overlap, and where we can at least see some other insights into the nature of prophecy or the prophet. So the first thing I thought I would discuss about a prophet is simply what's the Hebrew word? Mm. Because in, in, in English, what is the idea of, a, of if you're a prophet, at, at least on the more casual, simple level, colloquial level. I think most people think of it as uh, someone who can tell the future. Yeah. yeah. Almost a, a fortune teller, almost, right. not quite. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's we see it in our horoscope pages. That's where we look for our future. Yeah. And the Hebrew word for prophet is is a navi, or in, in modern, I, I don't speak modern Hebrew, mine is Ashkenazic, mm. influenced by Yiddish. So it's navi as opposed to navi. But it's a navi, and prophecy is nevuah. What's interesting about the word, it's certainly in the text itself often is speaking about future events, but that's not what's primary. Right. The, the root word itself, navi, is related, the rabbi is related to the word, same sound, the same, same, same verbal root, from, from the root word to flow or to gush. Something is, is just bubbling up within and, right. and, and, and flowing out. So immediately, that's just the, 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 the basis of the word itself. 
it has something from within is flowing without, but the origins of what is flowing or dwelling, of welling up from within is always beyond or above. So, and, and Navua is, is simply the noun, that's the prophecy. But in, in Judy, so just up front, what, before we go into some of the other dynamics of, of what prophecy might be, or a prophet, specifically a prophet, what, what do you understand by the term prophet or a LDS community? Well, you may be asking the wrong person because I don't know that I'm normal, Sue. So, in fact, I'd love to, to tell you what I typically tell my classes okay. when I'm teaching Old Testament especially, and then you get your feedback on it. Okay. Um, but I tell them that uh, we currently, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we currently use the word to mean two things at once. And we get confused when we see how it's been historically used. Yeah. Um, because the, when we say the word prophet, we typically think the presiding high priest of the church, meaning the person who presides over the church and has been designated by God to, uh, to do that and to give us information from him. Mm -hmm. And part of that is what that historical meaning is. But if we were sure. to go to that, that historical meaning, that giving things forth from God, uh, it, it, we're not going to see uh, in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, whatever phrase we'd like to use, this kind of hierarchical structure that we are attaching to it. But we will see, and, and the phrase I usually use is rather than a foreteller, a forth teller. Hmm. And I think that's that gushing yeah. part, right? This is someone who has has something that God has given them that they need to convey on behalf of God. Uh, in fact, if, uh, one of the phrases I use is, uh, or I love to talk about is when Jeremiah says he wanted to stop, mm -hmm. but he couldn't stop. That It was a fire burning in him that had to come out. So he's a forth teller. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that will be telling the future, but most often it's very relevant for their day at that time. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, and I think we're, we're certainly on the same, same ground there. In, in, in the Jewish tradition, according to the, the Talmud, in that that's our oral tradition in, in Judaism we don't just have a, a Bible we have a Bible that's the written tradition and then there's an oral component that uh, we have that it helps understand the basis and the breadth and the depth of that tradition I know in Protestant thought there isn't there was the sola scriptura my understanding is in the LDS world there's also no oral dimension or component that was ultimately ever written. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certainly things that were taught that we try and recover. What did Joseph Smith really say, or what did okay. really say? Right, but, but, but we have a not text what you're talking. That about. is, we we consider the way I try to express it is our written text, the the, the first five books of the Bible. Or the, yeah, that's the condensed version. That's the crib notes or the cliff notes. And the oral tradition helps you understand it more fully. Yeah. And it's always evolving, but it's it never loses its root. Mm -hmm. In in terms of prophet or prophecy, our our era of prophecy has ended. Prophecy proper. Mm -hmm. There there are many layers. When when we get into prophecy, prophecy, not prophet, but when mm -hmm. we discuss prophecy, we'll discuss a little bit about some of the nuances of prophecy. But as far as a prophet, we have in the Jewish tradition, according to the Talmud, uh, 48 prophets in the Bible, male, and there were seven female prophets. So Sarah, 
Okay, Miriam, Devorah, De sorry, Deborah, yeah. uh, Hulda, I don't know how you say that in English, Hulda, yeah. Hulda, uh, Abigail, mm -hmm. David's wife, mm -hmm. um, Esther. Mm -hmm. So, and then the most of the prophets you would know simply there. There are probably a few that you wouldn't know that are mentioned, like Baruch or Baruch, you know, Neria. A few few names you may not know because yeah, you yeah, haven't yeah. read, but the but the, ba the the basic prophets you would know. However, the Talmud teaches also that that wasn't the extent of the prophets that we had. We had, according to their language, twice, we had one point, roughly 1.2 million prophets. But what happened to all our writings? So what they say is, yes, they were prophets, but what is preserved in our tradition is the prophets whose words always pretend uh, it helped us understand what the future held not only the present the 12 1.2 million were prophets that told us about now the here and the now which we always need we need mm -hmm. guides through life mm -hmm. and these were deep guides and and prophets back then actually even went to schools they were guilds guilds for prophets and it wasn't simply a, a scholastic event though there had to be ethical, moral, spiritual preparation so that you could be a fit vessel to receive. Because if, 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 you, if you don't have a clean soul, the holy isn't going to dwell there. And then the words that come out, the words can't come out of an unholy vessel. Right. So we're not a perfect vessel, certainly, but we have to prepare. And that's what those guilds were for, to help us prepare ourselves, our souls, to make sure we're living lives of of ethically that were ethically upright so that we would be able to be a fit vessel to receive holy wisdom from above and that's what would then flow out of us as instruction for the people either historically in the context or ultimately in the text both then and now so that's what that's how we would on, on as we say in Judaism on one foot uh, or in Hebrew it's an expression briefly that's how we would understand a prophet briefly. Mm. And maybe I could add one element, because when I was talking about the LDS point of view, I maybe uh, downplayed a, a part that I, I don't mean to downplay. Mm. And I think it's highlighted by this line. And now I can't remember where I think it's in First Samuel. And I think it's talking about Samuel when it said, uh, it says he that uh, aforetime was called a seer is now called okay. a prophet. Okay. Uh, you know, the line I'm talking about. Um mm. But that seer idea, mm -hmm. um, I think, is an important element for us that uh, a prophet is supposed to say what God would have him say or her. As you said, there are prophetesses in the Old Testament, but um, but they have the ability from God when God gives them that ability to see mm -hmm. things that the rest of us can't see. And sometimes that's the future. Sometimes that's a reality that's happening that we're not recognizing um, uh, but they see vision or see uh, something that's, that's going to happen. And that's part of what they have to foretell. So foretelling would be the primary element, but the ability to see when moved upon by God, something else is an important element as well. I would and say. it's not always a message people want to hear. It's usually not a message. In fact, our, our current prophets will say that a number of times. The world doesn't like the message that we give sure. because it's from God. It's not from the world. Right. Right. We also have non-Jewish prophets, according mm. to the rabbis, in the Bible. In the Bible, depending on which source you use rabbinically, 
There are at least seven. <laughs> there are at least seven, another significant number, of course. Uh, one of them is Bilam. Yeah, but Bilam is how most people say And then Bilam's father, Baor. Uh, Job. Good. And then Job's four friends. Oh, Eliphaz, yeah. Bildad, Sofar, and who did I forget? Uh, Eliphaz? Yeah, yeah. Sofar, Bildad. And the one at the very end. Him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and would you throw uh, Jethro slash Raul in there, Moses' father-in-law? It's interesting. He is a Midianite priest, mm -hmm. but... I don't believe he's in the list. Now, again, he's not in the seven list. Right, right. He's not in the seven, but there's another book called Sefer Yitzira. It's mm -hmm. more of a mystical work, and it lists several more prophets. But I don't remember seeing Jethro, but I, I just, I didn't. Yeah, uh, that's okay. I don't remember. I simply don't remember. But it's interesting and intriguing that, and I think beautiful, that we understand that we can learn from our fellow human being. And Job is so foundational. Job is so foundational. Now, there's a debate in our, again, in our oral tradition, was Job a Jew or a non-Jew? According to this opinion, he was a non-Jew. According to another opinion, he was a Jew. And according to another opinion, he was what we call him, uh, just in English, I guess you would say, uh, it was a parable. He didn't exist at all. Mm -hmm. So we have all the opinions. And so we have, we have wisdom. The beauty of that is that prophets, Jewish, non-Jewish, we all have that potential mm -hmm. to receive holy wisdom if we seek to develop ourselves, not, not make ourselves perfect, but perf be in the process of perfecting ourselves. And the Hebrew word is very interesting. It gives you an insight into the nature of prophecy, I think. The Hebrew word uh, to, to prophesy, in Hebrew it's used... Over a hundred times, maybe hundred and I think it's 114 times as a verb. The majority of the times it's used in biblical Hebrew as a verb, it's in a tense, what we call nifal, which is passive. Mm -hmm. You say, yes, lovely grammatical insight. Please move on. The idea here of passivity is you're a vessel, right? You're you're, you're receiving. And so it's not something we actively do, actively seek. It's something as you have done your necessary work of preparation in terms of heart and mind and soul and ethical, up, ethical living, upright living. It's then now I surrender and I open and I passively receive. And the idea is that it's not us. We are not. It's right. hopefully Ideally, not our words, although humanity always creeps into the divine yeah. and corrupts it to some extent. But the idea of the verb to prophesy and to be a prophet is passive because it's trying to, I think, emphasize for us that it's coming from above and not within. And so, so I, I like phrase... that. Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, no. I just I love that imagery. That yeah. grammatical imagery is very instructive for us even though we're not prophets, but still, that's the whole process of sacred engagement. Well, Moses hopes that we would all be prophets, but that's true. Um, that's true. But uh, 
Uh, so you used, the, I'd say in Latter-day Saint thought, the phrase that we would use, two phrases we would use most often that mean the same thing. One of them you'd use to be a vessel for God. The other is mm -hmm. to be a tool for God. Okay. Right. It's yeah. the, again, we're the passive part. Sure. He uses us to uh, bring about his will or his word mm -hmm. and so on. So I, I, I think that's part of what you're talking about with yes. that, that Nephal or the passive tense. I, right. I love that. That's a beautiful insight. Because otherwise it's, it's my will, not, yeah. not thy will. Yeah. A prophecy under the way I think we both understand it. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about what an astrologer would predict, but a real prophecy is not about the prophet. Right. It's about him being the uh, the medium almost, although I hate to use the word medium in this phrase because it has all sorts of bad connotations, but he's he's the 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 way that God's will and voice ends up being heard by everybody else. Yeah. So that's a brief, I think I don't want to get too complicated because we get lost in nuance, yep. but that's just a sense of, of what a prophet is Good. and, and prophecy. We don't have prophets today in the biblical sense. And, and the rabbis, the way the prophecy is described, according to at least Maimonides, he's one of our great rabbinic thinkers. Mm -hmm. He gives, I believe it's 11 categories of prophecy, some of which are pre-prophecy, but prophecy isn't simply I receive and there's one type. Because if you look in the Bible itself, you see many different types of, of inspiring messages that come out, but it's not all necessarily at the same level. Like Moses in, in Exodus 33, it's it's God face to face. That's, a, that's the most direct, obviously. But Samuel, when he's hearing in his dreams, he's hearing a voice, but it, there's, there's not that directness. Yeah. On, that's still at the level of prophecy, mm -hmm. okay? The, the word of God comes to a person, okay? That's uh, Zechariah, that's a, that's a term often used. Sometimes it's angels. Sometimes it's, there are very, very, there are many ways that you can experience something prophetic, some ultimate and some more narrow. But what, what about in our lives, are we prophets today? We wouldn't, we don't have that. We think that the prophetic area, proper, proper prophecy has ended, but it doesn't mean that we are not able to experience wisdom of God, connection with God, instruction from God. It's just not at the level of prophecy. We're seeing through a, a to use a Pauline phrase, a mirror dimly, you know, uh, if you're, according to, to, to Maimonides, if you are inspired even into noble action, that's not prophecy, but that's kind of pre-prophecy. But I know in the LDS community, you have prophets and prophecy still available. Yeah. Is the prophecy limited to a proper, uh, a prophet or the prophet, or is that available to us on a micro level? It's a great question. And I would say for us, it becomes a matter of stewardship. So if you're going to say prophecy proper or maybe prophet with a capital P, yeah. that will only come for someone who has been designated for it to come for the entire church. So we're talking first presidency, quorum of the 12. Uh, quorum of the 12 also. Yeah, although they will only do so in conjunction with the first presidency, 
right? So this, it will be a united thing. So really only one can say it for everybody, and that's the, the presiding high priest, as okay. I used that phrase earlier. But we sustain all of them as prophets, seers, and revelators. And uh, for something to become kind of uh, officially accepted as prophecy for the whole church, it would come from the group, the three and the 12 together. Okay. Um, at the same time, uh, we believe that we can all be a small P prophet, okay. um, meaning receive inspiration for mm -hmm. whatever we have stewardship yeah. over. So as a bishop right now, I can receive inspiration for my ward. It would have to align with what the president of the church is saying, mm -hmm. right? But I can receive inspiration for my ward. So we usually use the phrase inspiration rather than prophecy. Okay. Um, uh, and, and anyone can receive inspiration for themselves or their okay. family and so on. Uh, and so we usually talk about inspiration, which would not be prophecy proper the way you're using it, but it's maybe prophecy the way Moses was meaning it when he said he hoped that everyone could be a prophet. Um, so I, I think we're fairly close yeah. to, to what you were talking about, except for the difference that we do have still yes. capital P. Prophet. Sure. sure. And, and the rabbis actually, again, in the oral tradition in the Talmud, it's this time it's in the section that deals with blessings. They discuss there, they say that dreams are a, the rabbis like the, the, the number 60 or a 60th. Mm. They say like sleep is a 60th of death. Mm. It's a hint. Uh, fire is a 60th of uh, Gehinom, Gehenna, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. underworld. Yeah, yeah. Hell, um, we would say. Right. Yeah. Um, dreams are a 60th prophecy mm. so it's not prophetic in in the biblical sense it's not like jacob's dream right right and but but since th there was prophecy in that dream there was revelation i should say in that dream mm. and so for us at our level because we're not at that level for us we get a 60th which is the bare minimum we get a hint we're not we're not abandoned we're not isolated and we're not lost, but we don't have the full vision. And what we hope to do in, in our sacred studies, like our dialogues here, is to seek to see more within the text. And what we often do, we started off by, do we just look at it for the present time or do we only look at it in context? Both are necessary. And we often isolate, we often are often isolate our focus to one scholars often focus on the historic and reception history and we often want to find application and in the in another section of the or the the importance is is both searching both mm -hmm. and often we read but we don't search we don't stay with the text long enough to allow it to enter it's too quick so when we study, is it another again? It's in the uh, it's in a another section of the oral tradition, uh, a legal section called Pirkei Avot, uh, or the Mishnah called Pirkei Avot, mm -hmm. and it says there, right near the end of the that that the the. the how do I say this? There's technically six chapters, but there's really five. They added another one. So five is the main body. Mm -hmm. Near the end, it gives you this piece of advice for sacred study. And his name is just wonderful. Ben Bogbog, son of Bogbog, which means nothing. Mm -hmm. um, it says, 
Turn it over and turn it over. The double language there. It's, it's constantly turning over, turning over, looking at it from all angles. Why? The Khoilava, because everything is contained within it. And then it says, and in it, look deeply. We often read through the text, and it's important to read through to get the breadth, the basic sense. Mm -hmm. But there are much deeper dimensions of the text that are ultimately there to nourish us. The basic sense is fine and necessary. That's the structure of the house. That's the wooden structure. But try living out here in Utah with just the wood structure, <laughs> without everything else that is necessary. So we, we need the basics, but we have to learn to dig more deeply into the text and find one or two verses of every, I would suggest, we have weekly readings just like you do with Come Follow Me. I always try to see within the text at least something that is going to ground me or deepen me or refine me or inspire me in addition to the broad just sense of here is what I needed for this week, but here is what is really what I need. Good. You know, President Oaks has been saying a number of times for a number of years that uh, he thinks sometimes we focus on quantity, which yeah. is that breadth, right? Read and, and the quality, like he said, if you spent half an hour on one verse, that's okay. You didn't need to read a whole chapter that day and, and so on. And so that's, uh, I think, similar to what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's critical because we also do it in prayer life. We do it in everything say everything too quick mm -hmm. and and if, if we ate that quickly we'd have indigestion <laughs> that's my problem <laughs> <laughs> but you're not going to get the same nourishment if you chew your food better and it's the same thing with our holy words we have to chew on them and, and meditate on them and allow them to break down and then they absorb much better so that's that's how I thought with it. I, it's always important when we go into a text to have that as our background, Good. because otherwise we're going to leave our study the same as we began. And I want to leave with more. Good. So we and thought, yeah, it's I guess. Oh, I was just going to say, and, and I mean, if we're going to understand prophecy, Isaiah is the prophet's prophet, right? I mean, yeah. this. This, by other prophets, they're, they're quoting him, alluding to him, this is a prophet. Yeah. And in fact, in Isaiah, going back to what, what a prophet is, the rabbis in Isaiah 57, let's see how it is. In Isaiah 57, 19, it's in, in the Jewish tradition, it is the Yom Kippur morning reading. It's, mm -hmm. it's a section mm -hmm. of it, at least. Mm -hmm. Verse 19, you said? Yes. I create the fruit of the lips. There you go. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. The language here of Neves Fasayim, that's the fruit of the lips. Mm -hmm. That's one way the rabbis understand what a prophet is offering. The fruit of the lips. There's something fruitful. Right. There's something nourishing right. from the lips. But what's the first word? Bore. They say, I create. Yeah. Uh, 
I create, yeah. Yeah. So so in, in the Hebrew, it doesn't have the I. It's right. participle, but it, they just don't have a yes, need. Creating. Basically. Yes. Yeah. But it means, but it is. It's I I create or I am creating the the lips uh of, of fruit. These are fruit, these are fruitful expressions that are coming. That's hopefully what is flowing out of the prophet, nourishing wisdom from the lips. And but, I think the eye is supplied from the kind of continuation of birthday. Absolutely, 100 percent One it's it's absolutely there. But we say this on Yom Kippur. We say this on Yom Kippur, which you know what I'm gonna come back. I, I don't want to get sidetracked on Yom Kippur, our day of atonement, our holiest day. But this is making the scriptures real. And I want you to hear how we read a text. All right. We start off, first of all, not reading. We, we, we don't read texts in our services. And there's a reason. Every word in the Hebrew Bible has a melody marker over mm -hmm. it. So when we read it, here's how we make the scriptures real. We don't say it. We sing it. Mm -hmm. It's a melody. Yeah, and that's I, I struggle in synagogues. I go, I've been a lot of times. Yeah, I'm not very musical, so I try and hit the same notes, but I don't do it. But anyway, well, here's so here's how this is the verse fifty-seven nineteen. Okay, he heals him. The melody is healing. That's the fruit of our lips. A prophet is ultimately there with fruitful words, with fruitful teachings and expressions and wisdom to guide us because a prophet is ultimately giving wisdom from on high. It's a spirit of wisdom that he is offering, but not his own or her own. It is wisdom that is there to nourish the soul but it's a song, it's a melody. And when you hear it, your life, even if it's broken, it will be a, a minor melody, okay? But it's always melody, it's always melodious. And in the end, there is some healing if we take it to heart, if we take it to heart. Not if we speed read and we have to raise ourselves up and purify ourselves within to begin to hear it. But the first thing we have to do is be present with it. Yeah. Be present with it. With it. So. In fact, uh, as I've done little workshops and things to try and help people understand Isaiah, the first thing I always tell them, slow down. Mm -hmm. you, you don't read this like you're reading First and Second Kings. Mm -hmm. This isn't a narrative. You're yeah. gonna, if you're going to get something out of this, you're going to have to slow down. And if you only get through one chapter of the 20 chapters of reading, but you got something out of that chapter, that's better than doing 20 chapters and yeah. you didn't get anything out of it. Yeah, that, that's the foundation. You can have beautiful windows and curtains and, and a beautiful paint job, but if the foundation isn't there, you don't have anything. Yeah. So Amen. let's look in. Let's look in. You want to know, I was thinking, well, the chapters that we initially discussed possibly from Second Nephi were verses, uh, chapters 10 through 14. Of Isaiah. Right? Of so Isaiah. Second Nephi okay. 20 through 24. But right. that's exactly Dealing with, yeah. with uh, that they, they have chapters 10 through 14. And reading them, I know the basics, but when I read them again, I, I had immediately, this isn't everyone's reaction, and some people actually don't appreciate my, my 
my response or my experience reading texts sometimes, but I, I was troubled by parts of these chapters and how it portrayed God. And uh, especially, I think, uh, the, the prophecies against Babylon yeah. slash Lucifer. Right, right, right. Yeah, 14. It's it's tough. It's tough because it's it's not how we normally imagine a divine being who is like it says in, in Exodus 34, you know, he's he's guarding compassion for a thou the thousands of generations. We, we don't see that radiating from the words or the context. So what do you do with that, Rabbi? Yeah, well, and, and I'd say if we have some stark contracts. So if we're going to put, say, Isaiah 12 and 14 in contrast with, with each other, that's 2 Nephi 22 and 24, um, one of them is this God uh, that we're rejoicing in, yeah. and we want, and we feel His protecting hand. But two verses later, yep. you hear uh, uh, the utter destruction of a person and a place, yeah. and uh, to the point where, uh, well, we don't get this in, in fourteen, but if we were to continue on to fifteen, which isn't in the mm -hmm. Second Nephi stuff, but the next prophecy in Isaiah right. is the, the prophecy of the destruction of Moab and Moab. And you hear Isaiah say, this is painful for me to see. Yeah. This is hard. I'm undone seeing this. And, and I think that's part of, uh, if we're going to look at these prophecies of destruction, we have to ask ourselves, why? What's going on here? How is this what God is part of? And I, I, I mean, I'm glad you brought up 15 because now I can that should be our response also, but yes. people so often feel that's bordering on heresy mm. or that's not being faithful. Yeah. It's being honest. It's being human. Yeah. These are human beings regardless. Yeah. And it's Isaiah's gift to us. It's in Hebrew we say it's an echemta, or it's more Aramaic, uh, but it's, it's a comfort that we can have that response and that's part of faith. That's a prophet teaching us a proper response. Mm -hmm. Not our end, but that's part of the process. Right. And in fact, I would say, I hope that we even often have mixed reactions. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Because, I mean, part of what is being taught in 14, and we may get into a couple verses of it and we may not, but, uh, but part of what's being taught is that someone who has been oppressing yeah. has, has now been brought low. And so that means the oppression has ended. Well, we should be able to be happy that the oppression has ended and still feel devastated for the pains of the oppressor, even if that oppressor was oppressing us, which I, I think is part of what Isaiah experiences a, a few times in, in his writings, that the joy in saying, okay, my people won't be oppressed now, but oh, the cost that 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 end of oppression came by for the oppressor is is heavy and that should evoke as humans we should be able to feel both sides of that and i'll confess here i struggle with that mm. tremendously because and we had a discussion on on one of our weeks together in the podcast about great evil committed by human beings. Yeah. And the just, it's almost visceral, the notion 
that I feel mercy for a person who is so merciless is something I do struggle with no. as a person of faith. But, you know, it's, and it's certainly not as prominent in the Jewish tradition as it is in the Christian tradition about loving your enemies. We don't, we don't have that. Mm. We simply don't have that. But that doesn't mean, well, it doesn't matter what it doesn't mean. I'm going to keep us, keep myself on focus. We do have an interesting teaching in what's called Midrash. It's not oral tradition, but it's rabbinic writings that try to give us a deeper dimension of the text. Here's what the text says, but here are the potential meanings, not just superficial or surface layer, but there are many, many layers that can lead you into many different places of depth and enrichment and nourishing, nourishing wisdom. After the, in, in, in Exodus chapter 15, after the Exodus, when all the Egyptians are drowned, in our Passover readings, the, and in the Midrash also, but the, there's, a, there's a fascinating ritual that we have when we're doing the 10 plagues. Mm -hmm. We take uh, the grape juice or wine and we put a drop out as sorrow for the loss, that's it represents blood, mm -hmm. for the loss of life that was there. And the Midrash, this deeper teaching of the rabbis on the, in this case, the Torah, on Exodus. God, when the Jews are celebrating and dancing, God says, how can you celebrate when human beings are dying? I... I appreciate that deeply because the truth is, doesn't mean I don't struggle with it. Right. Well, we are still human. Yes. Yes, we are. The, the human being who commits great evil, just great evil, still has that same spark of the divine. That same breath was breathed in. He may have exhaled that divine breath. He may have extinguished to, to a large extent or numbed himself to that divine aspect of his being. And so he lives in darkness. So I have no, I have no love for a person who does just horrific evil. But what am I supposed to do with that divine spark that is in them? No. There is an interesting psalm that you know, they have a few. A few we can all find our proof texts. But in Psalm five, it says, "Those who love God hate evil." Later on in Psalms, it says, "God says, my soul." And sorry, those who love God hate the doers. Literally, the doers of evil. It's not the evil they do; it is the doers. And that seems to be what we all want to do. I don't. And I don't know how to balance that. Or, or another verse in Psalms, it says, my soul, it says God's soul hates the do these people who are doing evil. They have a divine spark, so we have to in some way honor that. But certainly the evil they do is hateful. Mm -hmm. And I don't think hate is inappropriate, at least in the context of their actions.
Yeah, and and I, I would agree. And, and in fact, there's an interesting Latter-day Saint text. I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, that I think in many ways speaks to the same thing you're talking about, especially that that uh, tradition with the Exodus of Passover and the the drop of wine. Um, and it's uh, a vision that Enoch sees. We have so we have this in the Book of Moses uh, in the Pearl of Great Price, and a vision that Enoch sees of the flood. And there's a verse where God talks about coming out and white hot fury and wrath yeah. against the evil and the the iniquity and the pain that is being brought about by people in there mm -hmm. and then enoch sees him weeping mm. and he says how can you weep your god wow. and he said how can i not weep mm. seeing thee shall suffer yeah. and he's talking about the people who are yes he's destroying right. um but also there i mean he's destroying them because they're suffering right. uh, the suffering they're causing each other right and and so it's clear god is feeling both of this, he has to end the oppression, mm -hmm. and yet the oppressors are his children. And so I, I can kind of identify this when I've had, I mean, certainly not to that degree, but when I've had one of my children picking on another of my children, mm -hmm. and you're very upset that this child has been hurt. Yeah, okay. And you have to punish this other child. You have to stop it. You have to punish, to teach him, and so on and so on. And yet... This is your child too, right? Mm -hmm. And what they were doing was wrong, and you don't like anything about what they were doing. Yet they're they're your child, right? And so uh, it's painful to punish, even when you have to. And so that's a very very small yeah. scale of what God is going on. But I I think it can help us see, and we see that both against Babylon and Assyria yeah. in the writing uh, or the reading for uh, of Isaiah for this week. Right. Yeah. And. The what's what's actually troubling also. I'm not here to offer answers. I'm I'm offering a Jewish way, a again, a not the a Jewish way into the text, which searches. Mm -hmm. Assyria is God's agent in bringing about a quite stern punishment of the Jews. Yeah. Now, and, and by Jews in this on. case, we'll mean yeah. both the Northern kingdom right. and the Southern Absolutely. kingdom. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it stopped at the Northern. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm speaking generic. Yeah. I understand. I just want to make sure my audience Fair. understands. Fair. Sorry, folks. The, the idea that God would use others to commit actions that we would all assume are not loving and upright. Yeah. It's different if God does it. We can then debate with God, but God is using an agent. Now, Assyria... Very imperfect agent. Yes, who then takes it on to a much greater degree and then claims it's them yeah. who are doing this. But the notion, again, this is wrestling with the text in a way that I think is being honest with the text. Mm -hmm. And being honest with ourselves, it shouldn't be easy to read about this. Right. Either the destruction that is taking place as a consequence of sin and idolatry, or the means by which that punishment is coming about. And then the punishment that comes to that That's punisher. True. Right. Yeah. Who 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 then went too far and abused. These are these are genuine issues that you can't read through quickly. And it leaves you, it, it does uproot. It really does, because 
if I, as a human, sent somebody else, another human being, to go and punish another sinner in a violent way, nobody would consider me an upright, yeah. a saintly human being. Yet this is the Holy One. This yeah. is God. And I'm not offering answers. I believe in the goodness of God. If, if, if we had to sum up the in one verse or two verses, the the essence of God, it would be Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And he's, we said, we, we, in fact, this is a famous chant that we have on Yom Kippur and on, on fast days. We, we read it several times. Uh, he's Rachum uh, Vachanun. He's merciful, gracious. It goes on about forgiving sin. I believe in a God who is loving, enduring kindness. But when I see actions in our texts that make me question that, I then, I don't abandon and I don't skip. I try to try to discover more how to see what I'm missing as a human with finite or limited vision, Good. to see how the infinite is expressed in language, which is finite and limited. But that's where that that melody can help us hear more. It may not be literal words. The words are the words, but the rabbis speak of God always speaks in the language of human beings because how else can we communicate? But it's an imperfect medium. Yeah. And so we have to learn to hear beyond or within from above so that we can understand what is actually before us. But it's not easy. And I often don't have answers, but I'm still seeking. I'm looking, I'm turning it over, turning it over for everything is in it. And within it, I am looking. I'm trying to look within, not just on the surface. That's good. And, and as you said earlier, and are just saying now, remembering that we're dealing with a being who's beyond our yeah. ability to understand. And, and we probably have made some assumptions that are not correct sure. and, and so on. Uh, you're absolutely right. And maybe I can... Uh, also just say, like, I, I know among at least Latter-day Saint scholars, I don't know about the whole church, but the, uh, scholars, there uh, uh, is a little bit of a debate even when we get this this image. And we have images of God calling this army, Assyrian mm -hmm. army together, whistling, setting up a banner, calling them together. But then you can contrast that with Isaiah 5 or 2 Nephi 15, sure. okay. the parable of the vineyard. Right. Uh, and... And what he does, he doesn't bring in everyone to destroy the vineyard. He just withdraws his protection of the vineyard mm -hmm. and nature takes its course, right? So is that what the calling of the army is? Is it, I'm just, uh, I'm not protecting you anymore. And naturally Assyria comes and destroys you because that's what they do. That doesn't square with the, the calling imagery, right? And so it's hard to square all of these things. And so there's yeah. a debate about how much does God bring about humbling or punishment and how much does he just allow it to happen? My guess is there's some of all of it. Yeah. Right? He is God. There's probably yeah. some of everything. Uh, but these are some of the questions that we have to wrestle with as we look at these things. I just don't know how you can have as a standard, which God does, mm -hmm. moral conduct. Don't kill. Mm -hmm. Don't steal. And then direct a group of human beings to what appears on the face of it. To violate that. Yeah. And you get that a number of times. Yes, you do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It is. And it's and it's not easy reading. 
Mm -hmm. It's it's you you actually want to read fast sometimes. <laughs> Very good. So why don't we read a text? Sounds I was, good. I was actually you know it was funny. I was thinking ten fourteen, uh, chapter Isaiah chapter ten, verse twelve. Sorry, and then this morning. This is always dangerous when you think of something on the spot. This morning, it's not as if I had time to turn it over and turn it over, but Isaiah. 11. Everybody knows the beginning parts of Isaiah 11. It's it's the famous, it's a messianic prophecy. Mm -hmm. It's a famous messianic prophecy that we all agree is messianic. And this actually, this reading from Isaiah 11, we read on the last day Passover, the eighth day. Oh. Now, uh, not everybody celebrates eight days of Passover, but that's another discussion. Most Everybody celebrates seven uh, who celebrate. And in the Outside of Israel, we celebrate eight. But this is the eighth day of Passover. It's the culmination of Passover, of redemption. So there has to be something redeeming in this. Okay. That, Good. And, and so I, Isaiah chapter 11 verses, I don't know. We actually start at the end of chapter 10 for the reading. But this is all dealing with Assyria, a, a and their, 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 their forest will be cut down. Mm -hmm. And the imagery picks up again in, in chapter 11. And I'll just say for my audience, so this is Isaiah 10 and 11, which is 2 Nephi 20 and 21. Okay, yeah. perfect. And it yeah. actually so works beautifully. Because, yeah. yeah. The, I think, why don't, why don't you read, and then maybe I'll read it also again in, in at least a little bit of it in the Hebrew so we can hear the melody before we start to analyze its component parts. So why don't you read Isaiah 11, 1 through 3? Because actually in verse 3, I was going to mention this in the beginning, this kind of gives you an insight into what a, a prophet is, capital P or lower P, something that we're all seeking to have. Verse 3, why, why don't you start with Isaiah verse, this is a difficult verse. Actually, it's so eleven three is what I'm going to read. Yeah, yeah, just that that'll that'll again give us a reminder of what a prophet is. Good. I've had two. I'm sorry, two. Oh, verse two. Two. Okay. Two. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to do three also? Sure. That's a difficult verse. At least yeah. the first word is very difficult. It sounds simple, yeah. but it's yeah. not easy. Yeah, yeah, and he shall make a uh, make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Yeah, that is tricky. To wow. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ear. Yeah. So without going into all the the, but that that's the idea of a prophet right there. Mm -hmm. We've got wisdom and understanding, and counsel and knowledge, and what you translated at the end of verse two, the yiras Hashem, the yiras. The, the, the fear of the Lord, that also has the idea of reverence. It's not just terror. No. Very often it has that awe. Yeah. It is a blend right. of, um, there, of course there's fear, but it's a, when we speak of being a, a person who is, if we use that Hebrew terminology of one who fears God, we, we don't understand it just in context of fear, it's in deep reverence yeah. and respect and honor and awe and inspiration and wonder. 
So it has that. And that's what a prophet, whether it's a capital P or a lower P, those are foundational to a life of prophecy or to a life of spirit, to a life of spirit. And, and maybe I'll just say for uh, I've found English speakers not doing the Hebrew that that, that word awe can be very helpful because we can talk about uh, that that thinking of God as both awesome mm. but awful. Oh yeah, right. It's this idea that that it's mixed. There's when we're in awe of something, there's a mixture of reaction mm-hmm. in there that I think is is part of what is going on here. Yeah, and I'll just refer my audience. There's a great talk on the fear of the Lord by Elder Bednar that if you want to explore that 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 talk, he'll help you think this through a, a little bit. But anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no. So that's that was I, I probably should have mentioned that which I was going to and just simply forgot as, as part of what a prophet has. But if you notice at the end of verse two, it is that reverence that that all. Mm-hmm. And then the next part, it, it that's a difficult verse, uh, verse three, but maybe we'll get there. But f- what I thought we would focus on at least try is to get a context, an immediate context of what is it talking about here? And yet also what is that context trying to bring about mm-hmm. or guide us into? Good. So there's an immediate context, but there's also an intimate context for us. Good. In fact, again, if it's all right, I always oh, tell my classes in my Isaiah classes that Isaiah is a master of using words to create an image or a, a, a painting or something, but, but with the purpose of creating a feeling within us and the Feeling has a purpose of wanting us to react or change in some way. Mm. And and so I think that's part of what you're talking yes. about. If we understand the context, the image he's painted for us, hopefully it creates the feeling that creates the second context, which is the change that should happen within us. Yeah. Yep. And and Isaiah's name means essentially God saves. So there has to be something salvational. Yeah. Something redeeming Good. within. Good. And I'm putting aside now those questions, the searching questions, the struggle questions I, I that we spoke about before. Where is the justice of mm. God basically moving another group of human beings to commit actions that seem ungodly? I'm away from that. That was just a part of how we engage the overall body of Scripture, critically and now contextually and devotionally. There has to be that that ultimate dimension of heart and inspiration, but it doesn't. We don't divorce it from mind. Right. So I thought we would, since this is such a famous, at least for many uh, people who have read Isaiah chapter eleven, let's let's read uh, one through three again, and we'll probably get through one or two. But you, the context here is 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 Assyria coming down from the north to punish the the sinful ways, the idolatrous ways of mm-hmm. northern and southern uh, well, Israel, and you know, we'll call today Israel. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be, it ends with, the previous section ends with, with the forests, in, in, in the forests being the haughty ones will be brought low in verse 33 and verse 34. Uh, the forests and the, all of the other, every the thickets will be cut down by, by iron, and in the Lebanon, uh, the Lebanon and the Lebanon will will fall by the the mighty one, I guess we yeah. would say. Yeah. 
So now we begin a new chapter. And it starts off the melody, just ver well, the English. Why don't you read the, is there anything else you want to set us up with, with this Davidic messianic prophecy? No, I, just that idea that, uh, I mean, things have gotten terrible, but God's not going to let it end there. Yes, yeah, so, so that's what, when you look at, don't just look within the verse. Right. Look at the juxtaposition of chapters, the yeah. themes, yeah. because the northern Assyria was a monstrous force. They were a monstrous army. And right in the midst of destruction, the Messiah, the messianic lineage, not the, not the coming of Messiah, but the hope, mm -hmm. the future, the potential of Messiah mm -hmm. is going to sprout, is yeah. going to blossom or blue, uh, not, not bloom, but it's going to begin to grow. Right. What a beautiful way of in life, this is what taking a grand theme or making a detail into a very grand theme for life that Assyria, not Assyria of the Assyria of history, but when the Assyrias metaphorically of mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. when the forces from the north, from around us, come down upon us and break us and cut us down, mm -hmm. is that the end? That's Assyria in life. Right. That's contextualizing it for us metaphorically, spiritually, so we can live with the text. We have the historic context, and it's an absolute necessity. But it's not only speaking of history, because I don't need to know ultimately about Assyria. The relevant and, and Assyria, that rude, Ashur in Hebrew, is the word for a step. Okay, it's to, 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 to move forward, to step forward. Uh, life often steps on us. Mm -hmm. Those are our, so to speak, Assyria's of life. And they come down and they cut us off. And we are lost and without hope because this is the end. And in fact, the 10 northern tribes were taken away by Assyria. Yeah. Yeah, and they scattered, were. right? And that's it. And we were only left. They were they couldn't get down into Judah. But the context here, the beauty here of the structure of the text is that that's not the end. Right. At that point, Vyatsa Chaiter, Migeza, Yishai, or or in the language of the melody. And again, this isn't this is such a beautifully fitting melody and i admit if you if you hear other people reading this section in a synagogue in in a more traditional setting not in the reform or conservative they have a different melody but my rebbe my teacher everybody knew he had his own way it was grounded in certainly the melodic tradition but he had his own little unique way in very beautiful soul but you can hear in this melody that how, how do they translate verse one of the uh, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay, so rod, you know, that word hoter is not a common word at all. I think it's only used twice. I think it's only used twice, once in Proverbs 14. But, and there it's with the mouth of a fool. So it's not a, I don't, I don't know about rod because the imagery here is all. Yeah, it's, it's a forestry and trees. Kind of yeah, 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 so. I would think some type of a, of a staff or a shoot or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. But 
something very plaintive about it because the circumstances mm -hmm. are grave. But the message, there will emerge some type of staff, rod, something growing from this stump of Jesse. Who comes from Jesse? In a few generations, David. Yeah. Who ultimately comes from David? Messiah. Mm -hmm. We can't see that here. I don't even see the tree. I see a stump. Right. Who is the stump in your understanding here? This. Uh, who well, is the stump? Uh, at least one potential. Uh, the the Latter-day Latter Saint understanding would say there are at least two fulfillments. There are more, but one would But contextually, would say, I mean, histor in, oh, in the context, sorry. Oh, in the context, yeah. you're probably going to say Hezekiah. But, okay, uh, fine. So that's one opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, right. But but it's what was cut down. What is going so, to... Oh, I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. So, well... Uh, Israel has been cut down. Yes, but who else? Who else is going to be stopped here? Well, at least in the Jewish world, some interpret this as, as Syria. Syria, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and and I think you have this this parallel thing going on. Yes, as Israel is being cut down, something will grow out of its its roots and its stump. What has been left, right? And that, but at the same time. As Assyria yes. is doing the cutting down, they will be cut down. Yes, and and we get that in actually a few other verses where it talks about cutting them down. Yes, but um, but what's what's the potential? This this little shoot that is coming out, if we understand that as Assyrian, the salvation is coming from the very source. That's exactly right. That's rich. Because our end, what is supposedly our end, has within it our beginning. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that is, we always need when sorrow, when, when sorrow happens, when affliction happens, physical ailments happen, the many Assyrias of life, they cut us down. That's Assyria. Right. In the end, that's not going to, be, to become the forest again. But that stump of Assyria, those those sorrows, out of that, something will blossom. It's it's not large, and it's not fully grown, but it's the hope. It's the hope of Yeshai of Jesse. Sorry, the hope of Jesse, and it's that branch, that little branch from the root. It will it will begin to grow. I think. When we really need scripture, holy text, holy wisdom, spiritual light, is when we're in darkness. Mm -hmm. When we need hope for something to regrow again is when parts of us have died. We've all lost family. And we've all lost dreams, Ever. parts of yes, ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we were, I was going to cover the whole scope of life. We suffer so much, and, and often it's taken away violently. Mm. It's taken away violently. And Usher has this idea of step. It's stepping, stomping. We become a stump. And I don't feel like I can walk anymore. I can't take another step. This is it. 
But there is, even if we don't live to see that beautiful vision of reforesting, of, of blossoming, of, 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 of the harvest, it's telling us that out of this, there is something hopeful. And that's a message that, in my mind, to quote somebody who I, who I think very highly of, that makes scriptures real. <laughs> uh, amen to that. And I don't know how else we can, if we just look at it as history, if we just look at it as history, it, it's our, we're history. We have to see there is something more growing out of it. And verse two is probably, uh, or certainly three, I don't know this, Verse two, we read, it is that spirit. That's what ultimately is going to renew us. Right. You want to read verse two again? Sure. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it's a little dark in here. It's very small. Yeah. My hope is that in the midst of the Assyrias of life, of sorrow, of loss, physical ailments, emotional pain, we can still hear some melody, but that melody that we need to hear is that out of that breakdown, the brokenness, out of that stump that is left from a once healthy, vibrant tree or life, from that, that remnant stump that seems dead, something else is going to emerge from it, Vyatsa, it's going to come forth from it, and it's going to yifrek. It's going, there is going to be fruit. I hope we can keep that in our minds or in our hearts because often our minds can't. The mind will nourish us, but the heart ultimately sustains us. Assyria is historic, but it's also ever-present, metaphorically, in our, in our struggles, in our trials. But knowing that out of that is going to blossom not just a shoot or a stem or a branch, but ultimately what that symbolizes, which is the messianic redemption, healing. That's something we all need to keep before us. I mean, this is almost a verse you want to put up on, on your wall because Assyria is ever present and we forget about the next verse when we're cut down. And Isaiah's name means God saves. And this is one of those verses that God has given, I think, to help us, to help us along the way, even if we don't ultimately make it into that messianic time period or see that ultimate vision. This is a vision of wisdom that we all need to see, vision and understanding and counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge. It's all spirit, spirit of wisdom and knowledge, spirit of counsel and strength, spirit of knowledge 
and the reverence and the awe and the fear of God. That's the gift that will help each one of us, I think, in our walk through life when Assyria metaphorically walks on us. That's, that's beautiful and powerful. And, and one of the major themes of Isaiah, he's constantly talking about this remnant that gets yeah. spared to come back. Yeah, it is a remnant. Uh, it is a remnant. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's not. And it's a beautiful hope, though. There yeah. is a remnant that is blossoming. Uh, amen to that. Amen. So I, I wish we had more time, but this I has been a, a fantastic discussion. And I can't think of a better way to end it than on this message of hope. Uh, amidst the Assyrias of life. So thank yeah. you for that. Keep, thank you. keep singing. <laughs> keep well, thank singing. you. Thank, thank you. you. And we hope that our audience uh, has been edified and uplifted as well, and that you'll share both what you felt and what you've learned. First of all, just sit down with someone and uplift them and, and do it in person and do it by a phone call, but also share the opportunity to learn from uh, Rabbi Joe on social media and by liking and downloading and so on. Uh, and we want as many people to be uplifted as possible. We also want to invite you to listen to the second episode this week uh, with Gainalyn Condi. We're going to talk about just a couple of verses in, in 2 Nephi 26. And then next week, uh, we're going to talk with Stephen Smoot. It's going to be a fantastic episode. So we hope you'll join us for that as well. In any case, I just want to say one last time, thank you. I love thank discussing you. these things with you. So thank, thank you, you so I much. I appreciate it. It's a real blessing to be here. And... I sing more. I sing more after our discussions. Even, you know, I think it's Bertolt Brecht who says, do we sing? Can't remember the exact quote. You've got to look it up. Certainly it was in the German. So either way, I'm butchering it. But is there song in sorrow, in sorrowful times? He says, yes, we sing sorrowful songs. Something like that. Mm. There is song. It's sometimes tearful. Song in Hebrew, it's a very interesting play on words, but it's the same word. The Hebrew word to sing, shir, mm -hmm. is shira. the same root. Yeah, 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 ashira, right. The same root is the word to see, ashurenu in Numbers, Book of Numbers. Ashurenu means, it discusses seeing. Singing allows us to see more than simply reading. So sing your text. Sing your text, folks. And... I, I love listening to the, what's it called? No, it's not the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Tabcats. Uh, the the uh, tavern, the choir on Temple Square. Something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Temple. What's it called, everybody? That is, I, I think. Tabernacle Choir, at Temple Square. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. They sing. They sing beautifully, and thank you for allowing me this this time and to share with you to learn, to grow, and to, to struggle and wrestle. But in the end, we sing. So thank you. Thank you.